Section 29 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 61, 98, Part 2. All this time the condition of things in Ireland was becoming desperate, after the appearance of the fleet in bantry bay and the hopes which it created on the one side and the alarms on the other the ruling powers of dublin castle and indeed at westminster had no other idea but that of crushing out the rebellious spirit of the irish people by coercion acts and by military law the national sentiment of ireland counted for nothing with them it may be safely laid down as an axiom in political history that the men who are not able to take account of the force of what they would call a mere national sentiment in public affairs are not and never can be fit to carry on the great work of government. Ireland was overrun by military regiments, sent over from England and Scotland, which had no sympathy whatever with the Irish people, and regarded them simply as revolted slaves to be scourged back into submission or shot down if they persevered in refusing to submit other forces representing law and order were found in the yeomanry who were chiefly orange men and officered by orange men and who regarded the catholic peasantry as their born enemies a state of tumult raged through the greater part of the unhappy island and there cannot be the slightest doubt that the floggings, hangings, and shootings inflicted by the militia and by the yeomen were in many cases done not so much in punishment as in anticipation of rebellious movements on the part of the Catholics. In the meantime preparations were unquestionably going on in many Irish counties, more especially in Ulster, for an outbreak of rebellion. The organization of United Irishmen were adding to its numbers of sworn-in members every day, and the making of pikes was a busy manufacture all over many of the counties. Grattan and some of his friends made many efforts in the Irish House of Commons to induce the government to devise some means for the pacification of Ireland, other than coercion acts, the scourge, the bullet, and the gallows. Finding their efforts wholly in vain, Grattan, Arthur O'Connor, lord edward fitzgerald and his brother and many other men of high character and position withdrew from the dublin parliament altogether and left to the government the whole responsibility for the results of its policy it is always to be regretted that a man like grattan should ever recede from his position as a constitutional patriot in the assembly where alone his counsels can have any practical weight but of Lord Edward Fitzgerald and Arthur O'Connor, the same is not to be said, for these men and many of their friends had made up their minds that the time had come when only in armed rebellion there remained any hope for Ireland. In the English Parliament some efforts were made by Charles James Fox and by Whitbread to obtain an inquiry into the real cause of the troubles in Ireland, but the attempts were ineffectual, and the authorities at Dublin Castle were allowed to carry out their own peculiar policy without control or check of any kind. Once again, the fates were suddenly unpropitious to the Irish national movement. The force which was intended for Ireland was suddenly ordered to form a part of the expedition 
which Bonaparte was leading against Egypt. Thereupon the chiefs of the United Irishmen began to see that there was no more hope to be founded on any help to come from France, and it was decided that Ireland should enter into open-armed rebellion under the command of Lord Edward Fitzgerald. It was confidently believed that all but a small number of the Irish counties would rise to arms at once under such leadership, and the Irish leaders little knew how completely the government was supplied with the knowledge of all the Irish national plans and movements. Indeed, there seems only too much reason to believe that the policy of Pitt had long been to force the Irish into premature rebellion by the persistent application of the system of coercion represented by what were called free quarters, in other words, the billeting of soldiers indiscriminately among the houses of the peasantry, thereby leaving the wives and daughters of Irish Catholics at the mercy of a hostile soldiery, by the burning of houses, the shooting down of almost defenseless crowds, and the flogging and hanging of men and women. Certain it is that many of the British officers high in command protested loudly against such a policy, and that some of them positively refused to carry it out, and preferred to incur any rebuke rather than be the instruments of such indiscriminate oppression. Pitt and the authorities at Dublin Castle probably reasoned with themselves that since the rebellion was certain to come, it was better to press it on prematurely so that it might be easily crushed, rather than leave it to take its own time and put its plans into execution when they should have arrived at a formidable maturity. The rebellion broke out in the early part of 1798. It had some brilliant temporary successes in Wexford County and in other counties. In one part of Wexford, the movement was literally forced upon the people by the outrageous conduct of the militia and the yeomanry. One of the local Irish priests, Father John Murphy, had used all his efforts up to the last in the cause of order, and had been most energetic in persuading the people to give up their pikes and other weapons to the local authorities. After the people had surrendered their arms, the scourging, shooting, and hanging went on just the same as before, and Father John Murphy and numbers of his parishioners were forced to take refuge in the woods. Then for the first time Father Murphy became a rebel. More than that, he became all at once an insurgent general. He put himself at the head of the despairing peasantry, and he suddenly developed a decided talent for the work of an insurgent chief. His people were armed for the most part only with pitchforks and with spades. Their pikes had nearly all been surrendered. Only some few of the farming classes had guns, and there was, of course, no sort of heavy artillery. Father Murphy showed his people how to barricade with carts the road through which a body of cavalry were expected to pass, and at the right moment, just when the cavalry found themselves unexpectedly obstructed, the insurgents suddenly attacked them with pitchforks and spades, won a complete victory, and utterly routed their opponents. By this success the rebels became possessed of a considerable number of carbines, and were put in heart for further enterprises. Father John Murphy won several other victories, and, for the hour, was master of a large part of Wexford. One of those who took service under him was a young man, Miles Byrne, scarcely eighteen years of age, who afterwards 
rose to high distinction in the French army under Napoleon, and maintained his position and repute under the Restoration, and might have been seen up to the year 1863, a white-headed, white-bearded veteran, sunning himself in the gardens of the Tuileries. Father Murphy, however, was not able long to hold out. The want of weapons, the want of money, and of all other resources, and no doubt the want of military experience, put him and his men at a hopeless disadvantage, and he was defeated in the end and was executed in the early summer of 1798. While the rebellion lasted, there were no doubt many excesses on both sides. The rebels sometimes could not be prevented by their leaders from fearful retaliations on those at whose hands they had seen their kindred suffer. The gallant Miles Byrne himself has told us in his memoirs how in certain instances he found it impossible to check the rage of his followers until their fury had found some satisfaction in what they believed to be the wild justice of revenge. No one, however, who has studied the history of the times, even as it is told by loyalist narrators, will feel surprised that the policy which had forced on the outbreak of the rebellion should have driven the rebels into retaliation on the few occasions when they had the upper hand and found their enemies at their mercy. It has never been denied that the excesses committed by the rebels were but the spasmodic outbreaks of the passion of retaliation and that the Irish leaders everywhere did all they could to keep their followers within the bounds of legitimate warfare. It is not necessary to follow out in detail the story of the rebellion. With no material help from abroad, there could have been but one end to it, and the end soon came. A peasantry armed with pikes could hardly hold their own for very long, even against the militia imported from Great Britain, the Orange Yeomanry, and the Hessian troops hired from Germany to say nothing of the regular English soldiers who were armed and trained to war. Even the militiamen and the yeomanry had better weapons than the pikemen who followed their Irish leaders to the death. Before the rebellion was wholly crushed, Lord Edward Fitzgerald was dead. The plans arranged by the leaders of the movement had appointed a certain day for the rising to begin, the outbreak in Wexford was entirely unpremeditated and merely forced on by events, and as might have been expected, the plans were betrayed to the authorities of Dublin Castle. Some of the leaders were instantly arrested, and Lord Edward had to fly and conceal himself. His hiding place was soon discovered, and he was arrested in Thomas Street, Dublin, on May nineteenth, 1798. Lord Edward at first refused to surrender and fought desperately for his life. He wounded some of his assailants and received himself a bullet in his body. He was then carried to prison, where he died sixteen days after. Fitly might the stranger lingering here, as Byron says of another hero, pray for that gallant spirit's bright repose. Even George III himself might have felt some regret for the state of laws which had turned Edward Fitzgerald into an enemy. Suddenly, another attempt to help Ireland and harass England was made from the French side of the English Channel. Bonaparte was away on his Egyptian expedition, and the Directory in his absence did not wish to forego all idea of sending a force to Ireland, but were evidently not very strong on the subject 
and did not seem quite to know how to set about such a business. For a while they kept two or three small bodies of troops ready at certain ports within easy reach of the English shores, and a number of vessels at each port waiting for sudden orders. General Humbert, an adventurous soldier of fortune who had courage enough but not much wisdom, grew impatient at the long delay of the directory, and thought he could not do better to force the hand of the directory than to start an expedition himself. Accordingly, he took command of a force of about a thousand men in number, which had been placed at his disposal for an undefined date, and with three or four ships to convey his men, he made for the Irish shores. He landed at Killala Bay, in the province of Connaught, and he made his way inland as far as the county of Longford. The Irish peasantry rallied around him in considerable numbers, and were received by him as part of the army and invested with the French uniform. He began his march with a sudden and complete victory over a body of English troops considerably outnumbering his own force, but whom he managed cleverly to surprise, and among whom a regular panic seems to have set in. Humbert's scheme was, however, hopeless. The part of the country through which he was marching was thinly populated, and large bodies of English troops under experienced commanders were approaching him from all sides. By the time he had reached the county of Longford, he found himself faced, or indeed all but surrounded, by the royal troops under the command of Lord Cornwallis. There was nothing for Humbert but to surrender, and he and his French followers were treated as prisoners of war after a final and brilliant fight, and sent back to France. The Irish insurgents who had fought under his leadership dispersed and fled after the surrender, well knowing that they would not be included in its terms, and treated as prisoners of war, and they were pursued by the royal troops, and most of them were killed. Matthew Tone, a brother of Wolf Tone, was one of those who had fought under Humbert. He was made prisoner, taken to Dublin, and executed there within a few days. Thus ended the second expedition from France for the relief of Ireland. Wolfe Tone, meanwhile, was waiting in France, hoping against hope. He had as yet known nothing of the fortunes and failure of Humbert's expedition. Some extracts from a letter written to his wife about this time of a melancholy interest. Touching money matters, I have not yet received a sou, and last night I was obliged to give my last five guineas to my countrymen here. I can shift better than you can. I hope to receive a month's pay today, but it will not be possible to remit you any part of it. You must therefore carry on the war as best you can for three or four months, and before that is out we will see further. I am mortified at not being able to send you a remittance, but you know it is not my fault. We embark about three thousand men with thirteen pieces of artillery, and I judge about twenty thousand stand of arms. We are enough, I trust, to do the business, if we arrive safe. With regard to myself, I have had every reason to be satisfied. I stand well with the general and my comrades. I am in excellent health and spirits. I have great confidence in the success of our enterprise, and come what may, at least I will do what is right. The time is so short that I must finish this. I will, if possible, write to you again but if we should unexpectedly sail, my next will be, I hope, from Ireland. The embarking to which Tone referred was that of an expedition which the Directory 
had at last resolved to dispatch from Brest for the Irish shore. By a somewhat touching coincidence, Tone found himself on board a war vessel called the Hoche, which was under the command of the admiral of the little fleet. This expedition consisted of one sail of the line and eight frigates, with three thousand French soldiers. It sailed on September 30, 1798. But the destinies were against it, as they had been against its predecessors, and contrary winds compelled the admiral to make a wide sweep out of what would otherwise have been its natural course. It was not until October 10th that the little fleet then reduced to four vessels, the others had been scattered, reached the shore of Loch Swilly on the northwest coast of Ireland, and it was there encountered by a fleet of six English sail of the line and two frigates. The admiral of the French fleet saw that there was no chance whatever of his fighting his way through such an opposition, and he made up his mind to offer the best resistance he could for the honor of the French flag. He promptly gave signals for the lighter vessels, which would have been of little practical service in such a struggle to make the safest retreat they could, and with his own vessel resolved rather perhaps to do and die than to do or die. A boat came from one of the frigates to take his final instructions, and he and all the French officers, naval and military, who were on board the Hoche, strongly urged Wolftone to go to the frigate in the boat and thus save his life. They pointed out to him that if they were captured they must be treated as prisoners of war, but that no mercy would be shown to him, a subject of King George, taken in French uniform. Wolfe Tone peremptorily declined to accept the general's advice. It should never be said of him, he declared, that he saved his life and left Frenchmen to fight and die in the cause of his country. A fierce naval battle took place, and the French admiral fought until he was overpowered, and had no course left to him but to surrender. The French officers who had survived the fight were all taken to Letterkenny, Tone among the number, Tone was in French uniform and might have passed unrecognized as a French officer. But that an Ulster magnate, Sir George Hill, who had known him in earlier days, became at once aware of his identity and addressed him by name. Tone calmly and civilly replied to the greeting and courteously asked after the health of the wife of his discoverer. Then all was over so far as Tone was concerned. He was conveyed to Dublin and tried by court-martial as a rebel and a traitor to George III. He defended himself in a speech of remarkable eloquence, that is, if he can be said to have defended himself, when his whole speech was a frank avowal of his purpose to fight for the independence of Ireland. He declared that he thoroughly understood the consequences of his failure and was prepared to abide by them. Washington, he said, succeeded, and Kosciusko failed, and he only insisted that in his case, as in that of Kosciusko, failure brought with it no dishonor. The one sole appeal which he made was that he might be allowed to die a soldier's death, that he might be shot and not hanged. Tone was found guilty, of course, there was no choice left to the court-martial on that question, and his appeal as to the mode of his death was refused by the Lord Lieutenant. John Philpot Curran, the great advocate, made a motion in the king's bench to effect that Tone should be removed from the custody of the provost marshal and tried before a civil tribunal on the ground that Tone was not in the English army, and that as the civil courts were sitting, 
there was no warrant for the interference of martial law. The Lord Chief Justice, Lord Kilwarden, a man whose public spirit and whose devotion to law and justice would have done honor to any bench, ruled in favor of Curran's appeal, and ordered that tone be removed from the custody of the provost marshal. When the provost marshal declined to obey the order, the chief justice directed that the provost marshal be taken into custody, and that he, along with tone, be brought before the court. The decision came too late so far as tone was concerned. Rather than endure the ignominy of a public execution by the gallows, which he believed to be awaiting him, he had found means to open a vein in his throat. You see, I am but a poor anatomist, he said with a quiet smile to the surgeon who was brought to his bedside. He lingered in a half-conscious state for a few days and then died. His death was the closing event of the Irish insurrection of 1798. There was, however, a sort of afterbirth of the struggle of 98 in the attempt hazarded by Robert Emmett, to which we have already made anticipatory allusion. Robert Emmett, the brother of Thomas Addis Emmett, was a young Irishman of great abilities and of generous, unselfish, imprudent enthusiasm. He could not bring himself to believe that the hopes of Irish independence were buried even in the graves of Lord Edward Fitzgerald and Wolfe Tone. He had no trust whatever in any assistance to be given from France, but he set himself to organize a movement which should be Irish only, and should find its whole organization and its battlefield on the soil of Ireland. He found numbers of brave and ardent young men to assist him, and he planned out another rising which was to begin with a seizure of Dublin Castle and a holding of the capital as a center and a citadel of a new movement for Irish independence. Emmett's passion for national independence had been strengthened by the passing of the Act of Union, the Act of Union had long been a project in the mind of Pitt, and indeed it was the opinion of many observers then, and of some historical students from that time to the present, that Pitt had forced on the Irish rebellion in order to give an excuse for the absolute extinction of the Irish Parliament and the centralization of the system of government in the Parliament sitting at Westminster. It is at all events quite certain that Pitt accomplished his scheme for a legislative union between Great Britain and Ireland by a wholesale system of bribery, the bribery taking the form of peerages, of high-salaried appointments, of liberal pensions, and even of sums of ready money. All that was really national in the Irish Parliament fought to the last against Pitt's Act of Union. But the Act was carried, and it came into operation on January 1, 1801. The act itself and the methods by which it was passed only gave to Robert Emmett a fresh stimulus to prepare his plans for the independence of Ireland. We need not follow in detail the story of these plans and the attempt to put them into execution. Robert Emmett's projects were no doubt all well known to the authorities of Dublin Castle before any attempt could be made to carry them out. In any case, their chances of success seem to have depended very much upon the simultaneous action of a great number of persons in a great number of different places, and the history of every secret revolutionary movement tells us of the almost insuperable difficulty there is in getting all the actors of such a drama to appear upon the stage at the same moment and at the right moment. Emmett's plan broke down, 
and it ended not even in a general rising of the nationalists of Dublin, but in a mere street riot, the most sad and shocking event in which was the murder of Lord Chief Justice Lord Kilwarden. While Emmet, in another part of the city, was vainly striving to retrieve the disorder into which the excesses of some of his followers had broken up the plan of attack, Lord Kilwarden's carriage was stopped by a body of undisciplined and infuriated rioters, and one man thrust a pike into Kilwarden's body. Emmet himself came too late upon the scene to rescue the Chief Justice, and from that moment he gave up all hope of anything like orderly action on the part of the insurgents, and indeed his whole effort was to get his followers to disperse and to stop any rising in the adjacent counties. Kilwarden died soon after he had received his wound, but not before he had uttered the noble injunction that no man should suffer for his death without full and lawful trial. Seldom has even the assassin's hand stricken a worse blow than that which killed Lord Kilwarden. In an age when corrupt judges and partial judges were not uncommon, Kilwarden was upright, honorable, and just. The fiercest nationalist of the day lamented his death, he had again and again stood before the crown officials and interposed the shield of law between them and the victims whom they strove by any process to bring to death. Emmet made his way into Wicklow with the main purpose of stopping the intended outbreak of insurrection there, as he saw now that no such attempts could, under the conditions, end in anything but useless bloodshed. His friends urged him to make his escape to France, and he might easily have escaped, but that he went back to Dublin with the hope of seeing once again Sarah Curran, the youngest daughter of the great advocate, with whom he was devotedly in love. He was recognized, arrested, and sent to trial before Lord Norbury, a judge who bore a very different sort of reputation from that which honored Lord Kilwarden. Emmet made a brilliant and touching speech, not in defense of himself against the charge of trying to create a rebellion, for he avowed his purpose and gloried it, but in vindication of his cause and in utter denial of the accusation commonly brought against him that he intended to make his country the subject of France. He was found guilty, sentenced to death, and executed on the morning after his trial. Thomas Moore, the Irish poet, who was a college friend of Emmett's, has embalmed his memory in three beautiful songs. She is far from the land where her young hero sleeps, she being, of course, Sarah Curran, to whom Emmet addressed his last written words, O oh, breathe not his name, and when he who adores thee, an appeal to Ireland to remember him who had at least the pride of thus dying for thee. Washington Irving, the American author, devoted a touching essay called The Broken Heart to the story of Robert Emmet and his blighted passion. The lovers of romance may be somewhat disconcerted to hear that Sarah Curran married after her young hero's death, but she remained single many years, and there is no reason to suppose that she ever forgot or disclaimed her affection for Robert Emmet. Wolfe Tone's wife married again some sixteen years after the husband of her youth had passed away. Her grave is to be seen in a cemetery close to Washington in the United States, the land in which Wolfe Tone's widow passed all the later years of her life. With the failure and the death of Robert Emmet, closed the last rebellious rising in Ireland, which belongs to the history of the Georges. 
Pitt's Act of Union is still in force, but it would be idle to say that it is anything more than in force. The union between England and Scotland, to which Pitt's supporters so often triumphantly appealed, was made under conditions and on terms totally different from those which had to do with the union between England and Ireland. End of section 29